in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Hey, it's Gabby Dunn. If you want to listen to Bad With Money without ads, the best way to do that is by signing up for Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcherpremium.com or the Premium tab in your Stitcher app and sign up with the promo code MONEY to try a free month of premium listening. You'll get ad-free listening to Bad With Money as well as all Stitcher and Earwolf shows. And your premium subscription supports our show directly too. That's stitcherpremium.com promo code MONEY for a free month of premium listening. Thank you! You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. 
keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Hiya, Deadbeats! I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money. We know by now that there's no catch-all advice for everyone when it comes to money. So today, we're going to be focusing on Latinas and money, specifically on the Latinx community and intergenerational wealth. So what is intergenerational wealth? Well, being rich is twofold. You have your income and your wealth. Your income is what you're making right now, the money coming in. And though that might be high, your wealth is the accumulation of what you own. All of it. Cars, houses, boats, stocks, bonds. Wealth is usually generational, meaning that it is often passed down through generations, right? So from grandparents to parents to children. And generational wealth is typically only available to white people for many horrifying reasons. Slavery, immigration, redlining, all flavors of racism and xenophobia. No matter your income, you can never catch up financially or have real economic stability if you don't build a lot of generational wealth. Unfortunately, household wealth for Latinx and Black families is declining. A recent study from a nonprofit called Prosperity Now lays it out starkly. In just over a generation, median Black and Latinx households have seen their net worth decrease by 75% for Black households and 50% for Latinx households. Meanwhile, Median white households saw their net worth increase by 14%. If it keeps going like this, the report says that white households five years from now will have net worth 99 times higher than black and 75 times higher than Latinx households. This is a lot of wild numbers. And what it boils down to is this. The racial wealth gap is deepening fast. So why is it important to have generational wealth? If you have an unexpected expense, like a dental emergency, or you get fired, wealth will provide a buffer. It also keeps you out of what my guest this week, Ramona Ortega, calls survival mode. When you have wealth, you can build more wealth, like buy a home, pay for a graduate degree, or invest in the stock market. When you're not in survival mode, you can slow down, take a look at your money, and really figure out how to change your life. But racism has made that hard for anyone other than white people who typically have intergenerational wealth to do. My guest, Ramona Ortega, is the founder of the financial planning platform, My Money, My Future. It's focused on helping millennial Latinas specifically build wealth. The Latinx community, though obviously not a monolith, tends to have its own culturally based set of values when it comes to money. Financial education and traditional money advice, newsflash, isn't serving young people of color or their specific communities. More than 40 million millennials are non-white, and a majority, according to Forbes, don't come from intergenerational wealth. I grew up in California, very working class, middle class, never learned about money. And it was sort of the only thing I learned about money was that, you know, hold on to it. If you don't have it, um, make sure you hold on to it. And so, you know, later in life, I luckily was able to sort of, you know, scrape my way out, Um, went to UCLA and then came to New York and did about 10 years in international human rights work, then ended up going to law school because I realized you need to follow the money if you want to solve the problems. Uh Um, And so I did that and I ended up working 
working in bankruptcy and at the SEC and then doing securities litigation. So I really got a sort of an inside look on how very wealthy people manage their money and the vehicles um, that they use to do so. And I realized I was like, well, let me let me look around and see, you know, who's talking to me, right? Right. And so I looked in sort of, you know, the quote unquote, the, the rise of fintech at that time. I was still working at the firm. And I, I looked around and I was like, oh, none of these companies or even the fintech sort of like we talk about innovation, nobody was specifically talking to the sort of the multicultural millennial. Mm-hmm. Um, and at first it was just sort of the multicultural, right? Like who's talking to people of color? Who's talking to, to poor people essentially? Right. Um, and I wasn't finding that. What I did see though at that time was sort of, you know, Alexa Vontola had just sort of launched LearnVest and there was mm-hmm. Daily Worth. So I was like, okay, there seems to be an understanding that there's a nuance relationship around money and women, right? Mm-hmm. So money and women was like, okay, cool. Like, And there's a lot of similarities, right? Because people often ask me also, you know, why women? Why women and money? Because we have different experiences with it. And, I, and the same um, is to be said for communities of color, particularly in this country where people are struggling with, you know, so the leftovers of structural racism, intergenerational wealth and the lack thereof. Um, so the wage gap, there's many things that I think become challenges when we think about building wealth. And there's also cultural sort of nuances and behaviors that we often share in different communities of color, but also with working class folks. I I will say that, you know, while our aim is communities of color, I, I think broadly it's those that have been underserved or overlooked by mm-hmm. financial institutions. So basically anytime financial services is merged with a technology or a technology platform. So do you remember when it clicked for you to start working on My Money, My Future? Like when you were like, let me commit to to doing this? Yeah. Um, so there was kind of like two commitments. It was like engagement and then getting married. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the engagement started, um, or I guess the courting. I, I, I'm i involved with this group called the Cafecito Group. It's women, uh, Latina lawyers in New York City. And I remember asking some of my colleagues, what are they doing with their portfolios? What are they doing with their money? How to manage it? Because um, at that point, I was like still figuring out my shit, right? I was like, mm. oh, I need to figure this stuff out. And the the answers that I got were sort of like, oh, I don't do that. My husband does that or my dad does that or I kind of, I know something about it, but I really – I don't know much about it. So mm. I started seeing this huge confidence gap essentially. And I was like, well, if these ladies don't feel confident about money, then, you know, we're all screwed because <laughs> we're mm-hmm. sort of the – I mean, I guess, you know, 1% of like Latinas who have, you know, or JDs are working in corporate law. And so I thought, wow, there's a real opportunity here. And like I said, I had started looking around at that point at other at sort of who's doing what in this in the space and didn't find anything that really um, spoke to me or spoke to my experience. And so the initial response was, well, why don't I just write a blog? Like, why don't I do kind of a blog that's easy? I can put up a WordPress site um, mm-hmm. and we'll focus this kind of, you know, on um, sort of professional Latinas and money. And so it started with that. And then about six months in, there was an opportunity to do an event um, that we were going to do with the city of Los Angeles. And so it was a, a financial boot camp. And the idea was that we would it'd be an opportunity for us to kind of es- essentially talk to our customers, right? Mm-hmm. And so about 250 women came out on a Saturday um, to talk about money. And it was just a phenomenal experience, right? And so at the end of that day, I realized it's not enough to just 
create content and provide the content, people want to take action. People want guidance. People want advice. And they want that advice from someone they trust, right? Because we all know there's there's financial advisors out there. Anybody can essentially now get a financial advisor, although the price point is is somewhat high. Um, but there's, there's quite a few people that could if they wanted to um, engage a financial advisor. But it wasn't that. They wanted someone that understood their needs understood their sort of uh, situation in their communities, um, that they didn't feel embarrassed to ask questions. Uh Um, There's a lot of shame in money, right? Of course. Um, So that was sort of the, oh, it's time to get married. (laughs) Uh And I decided at that moment, I was like, okay, I need to build something out that provides financial guidance. So like, how do we digitize financial advice? So if I sat down with someone and said, here's what I think you should be doing, I can't scale that. But what I can scale is if we put that information into a digital platform. And now back to the show. You were talking about not finding anyone who spoke to you. What's your um, background and, and what what was missing or what were you kind of looking for? Like what, what's your been your experience that wasn't being spoken to? Sure. There's, I think it's kind of two parts. One is when I looked around, just let's start with even just like the language of money, right? The the language of finance, even the blogs or the content that I noticed that was out there that was trying to describe personal finance in simplistic ways, I felt like still didn't do enough of the quote unquote education piece. There was an assumption of a certain amounts of knowledge or certain amounts of or an assumption also of behaviors, right? So it might say something like, well, when you inherit money, this is what you need to do. And it's like, oh, well, you're assuming that I'm going to inherit money, right? So, yeah. there, so there's there was a lot of assumptions built into sort of like how they explained how to manage money. Um, so it didn't assume, for example, when you're trying to build your credit up, that you actually have no money left over, that it's very hard to make double payments on something because you're like, I'm broke. Like, what am I going to do? If you're broke and your credit's bad, like you're, you know, <laughs> so mm-hmm. it wasn't starting from places that I thought, not just me, but I think other people also in my community um, needed to kind of like, let, let's start here and then then move forward. Mm-hmm. And then the second piece, and I think this is the more important piece, which is, what are some of the nuances? What are some of the beliefs and behaviors that we have in our community that are different um, or the challenges that are different um, that make it harder for us to sort of build wealth or some of those things that we need to overcome or things that we need to change, for example? So if, if you look at sort of communities of color and talk about the Latino community, I'm third generation, no, fourth generation Mexican-American out right. of California, right? So I don't have the immigrant experience, but I, I grew up in a very sort of Latino community, right? Uh-huh. So culturally. And culturally, you don't talk about money um, because you generally don't have any to talk about. So um, it's not something that you talk about in terms of planning. No one talked about 401ks or investment strategies or anything like that. My dad used to actually walk around with his paycheck in cash. He really? didn't even like, yeah, he didn't even use banks. He was kind of distrustful of the government generally. I mean, that makes um, sense. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. And by the way, I and mean, he's a Vietnam War vet. So there's many reasons why people don't trust the government. Right. Um, and and then there's things like, you know, decision making around money. Um, when you look at 
a lot of black and Latino families, for example, they make decisions around money, whether you buy a house or how do you lend money or who's taking care of whom. Those are essentially financial decisions that are made in a family, right? Mm -hmm. So when I think about retirement, for example, I don't think that anyone in my family really thought about like, oh, this is what we're going to do for retirement. Your kids are your retirement plan, right? Or extended family. There's an assumption built in and many, many times is that that children are going to take care of their parents. Um, and I don't, it's not a judgment. It just is. And so how do you then think about money or planning for um, building wealth when those assumptions are something that you want to acknowledge and you also maybe you, you're, you're okay with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do that. So there's things about credit too. I mean, I think that for a lot of working class uh, to poor families, Taking care of credit is not as important. It's really about like getting access to credit. So I've seen more than my share of of people who come to me and they're like, my parents used my social security card to open up a line of credit. That is pretty normative. Yeah. And again, no judgment, right? It's just these are the things that that have happened. Um, Even when you think about um, sort of insurance products, for example. In many communities of color, a GoFundMe campaign is often sort of how people address burial costs. Yeah, right? I've seen that a lot <laughs> oh, from so, friends. And, and it's, and you know, we joke about it internally. It's like, oh, there, you know, if, when you have an emergency or a crisis, you go to GoFundMe because that's how we have essentially done things in in communities of color, right? It's like someone's down, you know, down on their luck. Somebody, you know, luckily, hopefully somebody in the family has a couple thousand dollars to lend them, right? right? And there's never really sort of like, are you going to pay me back? It's just like, well, if it's your sister or your cousin, it's like, okay, we got to come through and we got to, you know, get her in a house. Or let's say there was a situation where there's uh, sort of domestic violence. It's like, oh, that person's got to move and she ain't got no money. Let's right. make sure that we come together to make that happen. And so the the structures for like the economic security, like they've, they've happened. They just haven't happened in ways that are planned. Yeah. It's way more community-based. Exactly. So, okay. So we were looking at statistics and it said that the median Latino family can expect to see their net worth decline by a total of 20% over today's levels. Like, what's going on? Like, what are the specific problems? Or what is My Money, My Future, like, trying to address specifically? What are the the points? Sure. I mean, and that's a big one, right? So the racial wealth gap is, is very huge, real. Huge, huge. It's huge. And what people often don't realize is that although incomes have risen across the board, so sort of all tides are rising, the the gap is still there, right? So even if, yes, over the last 10 years, our incomes have risen at, you know, $10,000 or 10%, the racial wealth gap has not closed. And in fact, it's it's worse than it is 50 years ago, right? And we know that. Just generally speaking, we know that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, right? So if you are already in that bucket, it's not getting any better. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, let, let's just start with the wage gap, right? We know that women make, you know, cents on the dollar, right, mm-hmm. to men. And Latina women, in fact, m- make the least amount of money. I think it's like 54 cents on the dollar. So even from a day-to-day sort of like annual salary perspective, 
we don't have as much money to tuck away into a 401k plan, right? Right. So there's that. Um, you've got also the shift, and this is a this is a macro shift that's happened from pension plans to 401k plans. So the middle class in America was really built on this idea of like, if you worked for 20 years at a company, you'll get a pension and you'll be taken care of essentially. That is now shifted. And so the burden has been placed on working class folks to put that money away in their 401k at the same time, they're not making more money, right? So that's that's happening. Then you have things like participation in 401ks and property values, for example. So in the housing crisis, black and brown families lost almost 50% of their net worth because of the housing crisis. Wow. So I always say people don't buy what they don't know. Well, communities of color have always known property is important. So that's where most of their investments went. And so all this money went into basically one egg. <laughs> and when that yeah. egg cracked, they kind of didn't recover. So what you've seen was that um, a lot of uh, white families from that that time period, if you were sort of in the housing crisis, have recovered because there was a lot more diversification of their portfolios. A lot of community scholars don't diversify their portfolios. They sort of stick with what they know. Mm-hmm. And if so, people don't buy what they don't know, right? And so it's like, okay, real estate um, or very safe investment strategies. So even something like, you know, putting money in a bond or putting money into a money market account with not a very high uh, yield interest rate, I see that all the time. And this is among educated folks, right? So they'll have like savings, like maybe it's like twenty five, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 sitting there not making any money. Mm-hmm. Because like, oh, well, I don't really know about that thing, that market thing or about yeah, investment. Scary. So I'm not going to do it. And so what we're doing from uh, our perspective, My Money, My Future, is helping people build wealth because we know that it's not just a set and forget sort of like savings app, right? It is going to take multiple things and it's going to take time. And so what we're really interested in doing is making sure people have that advice, resources, knowledge, and the ability to make financial decisions over a long period of time and to give them a roadmap to do so. So if you're 23 coming onto the platform, and we hope to be working more with universities, then we're going to show you how to get your first first credit card. We're going to tell you what you need to watch out for. We're going to help you build that credit so you don't pay more over time for everything else in your life, right? Uh So taking care of that credit, we're going to say, hey, you need to start opening up an IRA or a Roth IRA so you can start investing and building that that nest egg because it's not how much you invest, it's how long you invest, right? So we know that. All of that stuff is so scary for people. Yeah. But yeah, go on. No, so th- so what we've done is built a platform really to be able to be that financial guidance at every step of the way and so that it's not just a one-time thing. You just don't do a budget and then never come back to us. We want to be able to say, hey, all those things that you didn't learn at home or didn't learn at school, you can come to us and trust us that we're, you're going to get the advice and the best sort of guidance around that. And then what we've done is also brought those products onto the platform. Um, and so we vet sort of certain products that we're like, hey, this is a good savings account or here's an, a bank account or a credit card. And that allows us to scale and make available the platform for free. And then we get paid on an affiliate uh, model. And now we're back. So how does college education factor in? 
Interestingly enough, um, so there's been a couple of studies um, and, you know, I, look, at the end of the day, college education is always a good thing, right? I mean, unfortunately, the problem is that now it's just so ridiculous in terms of the cost that people are going in debt and getting jobs that are not actually paying them enough to actually pay off their college debt, right? Yeah, I think a lot of um, people of color are are more likely to have that issue statistically. Correct. And, and, that, and that has a lot to do with intergenerational wealth, mm-hmm. okay? And this is the connection is that oftentimes in white middle-class families, there has been some money passed down, whether that's mm-hmm. a grandmother or a savings account. Like, so when you go to school, there might be at least $10,000 that's like helping to pay for costs, right? Mm-hmm. Or when you get out of school, someone's saying, hey, I will pay off your student loans um, and I'll give you a loan for uh, kind of an interest-free loan. Right. I've seen this happen in law school. Some of my law school friends are like their parents paid their law school. And I was like, well, we're going to give you kind of a a very low interest rate. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have that happening. And so there's money that's being sort of generationally passed down. That doesn't happen as much in communities of color. So we end up taking more loans, more high interest loans, and then coming out of school with higher debt and then possibly facing challenges in the workplace of getting the higher paid professional jobs, right? So we still have discrimination in the workplace. This is not new news, right? Right. And so then you couple that over time and it's like, it's going to be almost impossible then to be able to build the credit or build the down payment to buy a home, right? And that's where, again, the wealth gets built over time. Yeah, because it's this thing, I think it's tied into immigration too, which was a question I was going to ask where like a lot of times the immigrant parents are like, well, we really want you to go to college. College really will make things better for you. Or it's the reality that, and I've talked to like black friends of mine about this, that they need these higher degrees in order to get the same jobs basically that white people would get. Um, But then it does cause like a cycle where they're, then there's, they're in just way more debt. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, even for me, I mean, there's no way I could have done what I did without the, my sort of the path of education that I took, right? I was a UCLA undergrad, came here, worked in international human rights, so had a nice professional level job and then was able to go to law school. Now I have insane debt because of that, mm-hmm. insane debt. And so I figured, well, when I when I sell the company, if that happens, then they'll get their money. <laughs> yeah. See, that's interesting. Like, I think a lot of times money advice isn't coming from someone relatable, even on the uh, the basis of someone who has loans or someone who, you know, has lived like a normal existence. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, while we're focused on this demographic, it's not it's not exclusive, right? I mean, look, how many apps out there are saying, "Oh, we focus on millennials." My question is on which ones. Forty-two right? percent mm-hmm. <laughs> of millennials are are multicultural. It's the most diverse generation ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you're queer, LGBTQ, right? You've got different challenges, right? In terms yeah. of of building wealth, um, or if you're a single mom, which I am, right? I went to to law school as a single mom. One of the first things that I did in law school after taking a tax class was buy life insurance because mm-hmm. I remember my uh, professor was telling us about this. And for me, it was like, oh, of course, I might not have anything to, you know, give my son. I don't I don't know what the future is going to hold. Mm-hmm. But if I get this life insurance plan now while I'm young and healthy and it's cheaper, then at least I know he's going to get that. 
Yeah. Right? And so that that's huge, too. And when you think about even, let's just talk about, like, sort of being single mom or dating. This is the other thing. When women of color divorce, they often don't get child support. Or the child support is really low, right? So it's so we're raising children with less money as well. Why? Uh, mostly because well, men of color are not in the same kinds of jobs as sort of white men, right? We, and we know that. Right. There, there, there's a differentiator there. All kinds of reasons, but there's generally, though, we're not receiving the same amount of money. There's also this sort of, you know, do you marry up or do you marry your own, right? There's there's a yeah. whole, that's a whole other conversation. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen in other communities either, but it's real. I have lots of friends who, um, who are dating white men and they're like, wow, it's really different, their relationship to money and how they talk about money versus yeah. what, what has happened when I've dated, you know, Latino men. So, I mean, it's different responsibilities, right? So there's also familial responsibilities with money um, that oftentimes sort of middle class folks um, don't have, which is like I have to take care of my mom or, I, you know, I have to, I, it's important for me to pay my mom's phone bill or to help her pay her rent. Yeah, I think ethnic families also have like I was just uh, talk, like talking to I'm Jewish. And I was talking to a bunch of Jewish friends of mine about how like there's this thing you know, where, like, your family is the most important and your family is the whole thing and, like, you all share everything and it's just these expectations that I don't think other families have. Right. Right. No, and exactly. And, and that's, I, it's not so much it's just people of color. I think there's ethnic sort of cultural values. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, and you see it even, I mean, this is sort of generalizing, but in the Jewish community, but also in the um, Asian community, you know, in terms of yeah. businesses, people give loans to each other because they know that is important mm. for building wealth in those communities. So as a businessman, if I've done well and someone wants to open up a shop or a store, I might give them a no-interest, low-interest loan. Mm-hmm. Right? And so there's like there's all of these things that tie back to generational wealth. And I think that's what people don't talk about. Yes. Um, even in quote unquote financial inclusion in fintech, um, it's all about, oh, well, let's help people get access to credit or to pay their bills, not let's get them into a place where they can build wealth and economic mobility. So I want to talk also more about intergenerational wealth because obviously this is like a whole thing and we know we know why, but um why do black and Latino communities have the least amount of wealth? Like what, you know, I think there obviously it stems back from like slavery and history and everything like that, uh, but it's still such a huge thing. And I think it comes down to the difference between income and wealth. If you could explain that. Sure. I mean, I mean, un- unfortunately, it's not as simple as just income. So even if, for example, holding wages equal, it would mm-hmm. still take a very long time for there to be wealth equality. Right. We're up against several hundred years of economic deprivation, essentially. Right. right. Where people were either not getting paid for the value of their work and or will be structurally prohibited from participating in wealth building activities. I mean, redlining is still yes. an issue, to be honest. But I mean, you know, those sort of the big cases around redlining, uh, you know, in the 70s. And then if you even look at the the most recent housing crisis, I mean, there was a lot of structural discrimination built into that model as well. Yeah, which is, it makes it hard for people to get loans, to get houses, 
to Correct. build the sort of wealth that white families do. Correct. So the so you got policies, which is that's what I'm talking about when I talk about structural discrimination, whether that's um, sort of intentional or if it's just a disparate impact, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are many reasons. It's the same reason why, like, why don't women make as much as men? Right, exactly. <laughs> There's exactly. so much bias built into so many of the policies and practices that happen in our country, and so many of those touch money or earning power or ability to participate in um, certain kinds of wealth building, like I said, activities. I mean, even, I mean, look at Silicon Valley, right? Like, why don't we have more tech entrepreneurs, Uh right? I mean, and a lot of that has to do with that generational wealth that's passed down. um, Right. And whether that's through a home or through life insurance and sort of, you know, uh, inheritance or Again, access to to credit at a at a lower rate, um, right. higher incomes. Yeah, two people could have the same income, but because of generational wealth, they, their money would look very different. That's right, right, and the and the having the, a, a safety net too, right, an economic safety net. Yeah, that's huge, and I think so. So when we look at like family dynamic, for example, if you sort of, I looked at a couple of stories, different founders, because you're always like, well, how did they do it? And, you know, they didn't make any money at first. They were not, they weren't revenue. And a lot of times you'll see that like, oh, I lived at home or I lived with my boyfriend. Yes. Or, so there were other people in the mix that covered expenses. That yes. is, I mean, essentially sort of in kind or sort of inter vivos um, sort of wealth transfer. Yes, absolutely. I think about that a lot. I look that up a lot. Once I see someone successful, I always look into that. <laughs> so you talk about like managing money with confidence. What does it What does it mean for the people that you work with to like have confidence in money management? I think also, you know, I think a lot of times white men will just do things and they're just very confident in it. And I think like historically and what I've heard from people when I interview them on the show is that There's just this thing of like, if we're not going to do it, especially for women, but probably for women of color, like if we're not going to do it perfectly, we can't do it. Like, how do you build that confidence? Yeah, this is a great question because that is definitely one of our um, taglines. When I thought about sort of what was the problem, like what was happening for people not to take action, right? Uh What I noticed was that People felt overwhelmed by the lingo, so literally the language of finance. Because it is. It's its own language. I hate it. And so if you don't feel comfortable with it, and then every message in the world is telling you that you are not a money expert. So this is one thing I I like to to point out is like, look at the commercials around money on a Sunday, on the Sunday morning show, right? The commercials, like all the wealth managers, you don't see yourself represented. You see an older man walking on a beach or you see other, you know, multiple white men talking to each other about money. Yes. Right? And it's yes. almost like a secret group. So they'll talk about it in a ways that's like, we want to make sure you're like, you know, living your best life. And it's just, it's kind of like a club, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you think about, even just when I ask you, I'm like, when you think about who knows the most about money, who who comes to your mind? It's white men. Yeah. Old, and in, in fact, it's older white men. Right. And so if you think about a totem pole, it's like older white men, then white men, and then maybe white women, and then like men of color. So it's sort of, and then like women of color are like the least, or they're sort of at the bottom of that totem pole in terms of like 
oh, you know the most about money. And so there's the, those messages are just in the world, right? And then on top of that, if you've never grown up with money, it is a source of shame. And so I'm working actually on a book right now, No Shame in the Money Game, A Broke Girl's Guide to Building Wealth. Super nice. excited about that. And that is really about how do we overcome the shame of being poor? When I was working in bankruptcy in the Southern District, you know, in bankruptcy uh, in Chapter 11, it's all about restructuring debt, right? And this is actually good for the books. People do it all the time. Big companies go in there and they restructure their debt and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yet poor people... Working class folks who are most of the time have huge medical bills go in and file Chapter 7, and they're shamed around it. Oh, you didn't pay your bills. You're not responsible. You're not doing things right. Why do you have so much credit card debt? Why do you have this? I mean, even the whole, like, you know, you can't buy your latte or your $7, like, avocado toast, right? There's a lot of shame around being poor as if you're not doing the right thing. Not that, by the way— the wage discrepancy means that I can't afford my avocado toast because I don't get paid as much as you do. Right. (laughs) Or all kinds of other things. It's assuming a lot about your lifestyle. Exactly. And there's a lot of judgment. And especially for communities of color who have been essentially poor for a long time, I think one of the things that you see is that people want to overcompensate almost, right? So it's like when you do make money, you almost want to be like, hey, I make money too, I can buy the Louis Vuitton bag or I can go here or I can do this and bling, 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 right? And and I think that's sort of so one of the things that I'm hoping to address is that once we start being honest about like, I'm not, it's, you know, there are things that I could do better. There's things that I could have, you know, done with my money. Absolutely. We all make money mistakes, but at any point we can hit reset and we need to stop being so shameful about money. Right. Or I even feel like, there's so much guessing that white men are doing and we just don't, we we think like, and I think like any marginalized group is like, well, it has to be perfect and we have to like not be guessing at all. But I mean, it's a real fake it till you make it kind of situation. Yeah. And there's no right answer. I mean, right. in, in finance, especially, I will say it's kind of like a chess game, right? So you're always kind of moving pieces. And if you know, if you do this, then it'll have some implications over here, or if you do that. And there's always many choices. And there's not like one clear answer. There mm-hmm. just isn't. So I think that's the other thing is that everyone's like looking for expertise and like, oh, you have to just give me the answer instead of just being like, no, you have to learn the rules of the game. Yeah, exactly. And then you can play it because what when we talk about making, you know, money simple and and managing your money with confidence, it's not that you know everything. It's that you know what questions to ask. You know the rules of the game mm-hmm. and you know that you at the end of the day are the one that should be empowered to make those decisions. Not a money manager, not a financial advisor, not, not a, a husband. banker, not a husband. All of those things, it's your money. You should own it. So what's a frequent wealth building mistake that you're seeing uh, millennials of color make and how do you course correct it? Sure. Well, one of them is the, the sort of, uh, it's not how much you invest, it's how long you invest. Yeah. People aren't opening accounts early enough in life. If I would have known, and I really kind of structured the whole platform, what would I have told my 20-year-old self? Yeah, that's great. Right? Because I think I would just be in a really different place. I've always worked. Right. I, I mean, I've, I've always had a job. I've always been able to make money and have an income, but I just didn't know what to do with my money. And so if somebody would have said, hey, just open this account, put $50 a month, and then every year try to increase that 
I would be in a really different place. So there's that, right? I think that's one of the um, things that I see people don't do. Um, the second is taking care of your credit, right? And again, no shame in the money game. You are We're often inundated with offers for credit, right? Especially if you're young. It's like open a credit card, go to Target, open a credit card, right? And so taking care of your credit is so important. And so if you know early enough in life that credit is really king, you are going to be doing so much better. You're going to pay less for everything. You're going to, you're going to, you know, have opportunities that you would otherwise not have because it's going to give you essentially some kind of an economic security. So there's so many things that I think are tied up in credit um, that communities of color don't think about. And, and I know that, you know, it's it's hard. It's once you're in debt, it's very hard to get out of debt. And so how do we be preventative, right? Um, and then I think the third thing, which is more just ask questions, you know, feel empowered to ask the questions. I hear a lot of people, for example, they have their first job, maybe their first or second professional job, and they're not asking things like, do you match your 401k? Right. Um, where can yes. I roll this over? You know, what kind of additional benefits? Do you have a, you know, an, an HSA account? Like, do you have a, life, a term life insurance policy with my job? There are many things that have to do with money that are part of your benefits package. So just not feeling empowered to ask questions. So the, now it's really like ask questions. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you've talked about uh, being in survival mode versus being in innovation mode. And I think a lot of times, like, I always wonder about what we're losing as a society because so many people are in survival mode. Can you explain, like, what the difference between the two is and what causes people to be in survival mode versus innovation mode? I I hate that. Like, I'm just, like, I, I really think about, like, the types of art and and maybe, like, breakthroughs in certain careers that we would – that or fields that we would have if people weren't just constantly trying to survive. Absolutely. You know, this is sort of going back to sort of models of like when are people thriving, right? Yes. Um, so I kind of took that from um, the model of like, you know, if you are in survival mode, the only thing you're worried about is like food, shelter, kind of health, right? And you don't have time to be thinking about, oh, what am I going to build? How am I going to create? You need space and a certain level of security to do that. Right. And so when I when we talk about sort of moving the needle for everyone, um, is that we want people to have enough economic security to pursue whatever opportunity they want. Right. And and it's it could so be rare. something from like a small business. It could be I want to make art on Sundays and sell it. Um it, it it's it's so many things because a lot of times what what we don't factor in into in terms of building wealth is the opportunity cost that we lose. Exactly. Right, yes. and that's never calculated. I'll just give you an example. Um, when my parents um, di were divorcing back in the day, um, it was a really bad divorce. My father basically was like, "I'm just not going to pay the mortgage," and they lost the house. At that time, my mom was in such crisis that she didn't really know what to do or didn't really have anybody to guide her through that. And because of that, we lost this property that was in Napa that now would have been worth a, a fairly good amount of money, 
right? And so we lost that. And then, I mean, I can think about when I first moved to New York, I had a decent job and I was living in Fort Greene, way before Fort Greene was Fort Greene and which yeah. is now a very expensive neighborhood. I could have probably bought a brownstone or went in with someone to buy a brownstone, but I just didn't know and I didn't have access to that information or access to someone who was like, yeah, I will help you, you know, with the down payment. Yeah. Right. And and that's the that's a loss of opportunity is a loss of build the opportunity to build wealth. Right. Um, so we really want to have people give people the opportunity to take advantage of opportunities, um, to be self-reliant, to be able to pursue what they want in their lives. And, and that's I mean, at the end of the day, I want that for everyone. Yeah. Survival versus innovation sounds like it has a lot to do with like it would connect with universal basic income. You, yeah, so that, that's interesting you mentioned that because back in my human rights days, we were really big on promoting universal and a universal income. Um, so this is a not a new idea, right? It's been swirling no. around the human rights world for a long time. So it's been interesting to see kind of like tech companies or VC companies, really VC firms, kind of promoting this. Mm-hmm. I. I, I I mean, look, I, I definitely think that there is a a place for some type of a universal income. There is a place for even supporting entrepreneurs. Did you know if you like if you have a company, you can't get unemployment? Right. Wow. So, so there's things like that that people don't yeah. even think about. Um, or if you close a business, let's say you opened a local coffee shop and it didn't do well, which we know many, many people put in their life savings into something and it fails. Right. Do we have any economic security for those folks who are taking those risks? No. Should we? Perhaps. Right. Yeah. Um, there's, I mean, let's, but we can also just start with we need to fix the student loan debt crisis. For sure. Right. Whether that's allowing student debt to be restructured in bankruptcy court. Right now it's not. So it's. Oh. It's, yeah. And that's Elizabeth Warren. That's one of her kind of issues that she's been sort of really pushing. But at the end of the day, we need better safety nets. And perhaps that's also, I mean, we're looking some states have been passing the portable 401ks. So it's kind of a state run 401k. And I think that's a good start. We've looked at baby bonds. Right. So giving people something to start with. Right. There, yes. I think there's lots of initiatives from a policy perspective. Um, I mean, if we just fixed sort of the wage gap. Right. Yeah. And that's why I'm a big proponent of a minimum wage. Right. You know, you have to have people give people enough money to survive. Otherwise, just in terms of just even the economic markets, you're not going to have a good capital markets, a strong capital market system. Yeah. The baby bonds are interesting, too. I mean, that's the similar idea to universal basic income. But I just am like, we we are not letting people thrive at all. Right. Mm-hmm. So what what does My Money, My Future, let's say, offer for people who are listening right now who live paycheck to paycheck or they help family with their bills and they want to build wealth? What, what um, kind of stuff can they do? Sure. Um, so one of the things that I, and we try to take it step by step, right? Because you're not going to do everything at once. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And most of everything that we're talking about is going to take some time. Like building credit is going to take time. Fixing your credit is going to take time. Part of what we're going to do is help you co- come up with a plan of like, okay, what do you need right now? Right? So is it a better job? Is it a uh, an emergency savings account? Right? And 
if it is an emergency savings account, here's a plan to build one, and here's the best account to do it in, right? Oh, that's good. Right. So there's things like, they're very specific sort of actionable things around that. Now, if you don't have a lot of money, there's going to be things that you're like, I can't do that right now, right? But at least you'll have a goal. You'll have a plan to be like, okay, here's the roadmap. I need to have a 401k. I don't have one. Maybe you're... Um, in the gig economy, for example, which we now know increasingly so many more people are in the gig economy. So you don't have access to 401k, which means you're going to have to figure out how to start to put money away into an IRA or a Roth IRA. And what we're going to do, though, is break that down. Here are the two kinds of accounts. Here's what they mean. This is what we suggest. I'm real big on Roth IRAs, especially for young people. And here's what you can start with. And he, and then, by the way, here are the different companies or sort of the products um, that that we suggest you start with. Because that's the other thing. People often get overwhelmed. Um, so they yeah. just don't even know where to start. And so you may they may read, a, for example, a, a read a great blog post and they're like, yeah, I should do that. And then they're never going to do it because it's just they're like, oh, that's over, like, oh, then I got to go find more information. I got to see who does what. Mm-hmm. And so you often just push it aside because it's you're already you're just trying to like focus on what you need to get done. And so what we try to do is really bring all that information in one place. It's almost like a money hub, right? Yeah. Um and once we grow and this is really important for all of your listeners too, like one of the things that we see ourselves as is we are also an experiment as a woman founder in tech, a woman of color in tech, um, supporting other women in, in in tech and business, right, as an entrepreneur, that if we grow and we scale and you help us do that, then what we do is we have more power in numbers. We can then start to work with financial service companies and say, we want better products for our, our users. And that's like the, the long-term goal is to be like, isn't there something better that we can offer people at a better price or a better integration or, you know, a new product on the market that gives people some sort of financial security without being overwhelmed, right? So there's there's all kinds of things that we can do. I'm also a big proponent of, you know, more women bringing solutions to the table. Um, You can't have sort of rich people solving poor people problems, Oh, that's huge. And I see this all the time in tech. And it's the same thing with women too, right? I mean, there's a reason that we're seeing an emergence of more women entrepreneurs in tech and otherwise, it's because we understand our problems. Who's better to solve your problem than someone who's lived it? Yeah. And it's like, it's so few of you that have the the opportunity or the means to do it. And so it's like, you feel like you have to. That's right. And even, I mean, even you as a creator, right? And back in the day, you wouldn't have been able to do this and make any money off of it, or even to be able to just have the opportunity to scale it and and have the reach that you have, right? And so there's, there's that opportunity. And how do we have more women, more folks of color, more LGBT folks, any folks that have generally not been in the space, how do we get them to be at the table? Right. And I think a lot of it is going to have to do with those of us who, who've been doing this or sort of on the on the um, sort of kind of creating a pathway and then sharing that knowledge and being like, oh, hey, you can do this. Here's how I did it. And and by the way, if, if I make any money and if I sell my company, the first thing I'm going to do is, is create a fund so I can then fund other entrepreneurs. Yes, of course. Right. It's so so fun that cuz like guys do this for each other all the time and then it's just like it's just so 
necessary for this to happen for other types of people. That's right. And I mean, I'm in a, a co-work space that's um, female sort of entrepreneurs. And I mean, you just, it's palpable the support that we bring to the table that we're like, hey, what do you need? Mm-hmm. Who can I introduce you to? What, you know, we say yes, because we understand that there's there's enough room for everyone to win. Yeah. I mean, so that, yeah, that dovetails kind of into my next thing, which is like, as a woman of color entrepreneur in fintech, is that the kind of stuff, the helping and that, is that the kind of stuff that helped you step into what was quote unquote, not for you? Or like, have there been other things that were useful in that regard? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so early on, I didn't have a huge network. I, I have a, I mean, now it's just, we have a, I have a much more stronger network in that sense. Early on, I think it was, it really was just the the arbitrage opportunity. It was like, oh my God, I have the opportunity to actually do good and do well. And mm-hmm. that, that those kinds of things don't happen very often but when it's organically built in. If we can do this right and people use our platform and we can build out and raise money and, and make it the best product in the market for our customers, we can actually change the wealth gap. We can get people in a different place, right? So if they follow the plan for five years and they're doing all these things and they wouldn't have otherwise done them, we've moved the needle. Yeah. And so and and it's not and it's not sort of like weird altruistic, I'm going to save the world. No, I'm trying to just do this thing and I think we can actually do it. That to me is like what, you know, when things are hard and they're almost hard every day. Right. <laughs> um that's really what drives me is that no one else is solving this problem. I know this problem better than anyone else and if we do it right, we change lives. What do you uh just for the Latina listeners that are listening, specifically Latinas, I just feel like it's always important to be specific because I feel like people are very roundabout with people of color. Um, Like, what do you say to them? Or like, what, you know, what is the thing that they should know or that they should feel like having heard you talk, you know? Um, Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. Um, One is that like, you, you got to be seen. You got to, you know, you, you got to take risks and you got to be seen. Um, There's enough room for everyone out 